2004, Mel Gibson wrote and produced The Passion of the Christ, a movie which sought to depict in all of the gore and glory the passion of Christ. Gibson's goal was to take his Roman Catholicism and put it on the big screen. And what we saw in that film was nothing short of gore and nothing short of missing the point of the story. Gibson sought to tell the story from his own theological perspective, which only sought to confuse audiences. Imagine, if you will, gathering together with our popcorn and our sodas to sit and be entertained by the death of Jesus. Gibson sought to make millions off of the death of Jesus, and he succeeded. In response to this terrible movie, for which left the, the viewer begging for two questions, really with two questions. First, the question was, why? Gibson's film never sought to answer that question. And number two, uh, many Christians, well-minded, who saw the film and who even today feel that it is still an important piece in our, la in our century, uh, do not realize that this movie seeks to undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. That is, that what God wanted you to know about the death of Jesus is contained within the four Gospels that we have in our Bibles. That if God wanted you to know of the gore and the guts of the sacrifice of Jesus, He would have included that in the Gospels. But since He didn't include that, they are insufficient for our trust and in our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No first century Christian needed to know how Jesus died and in order for them to put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so this movie seeks to undermine the sufficiency of scripture. But it also leaves you to, uh, leaves you to kind of wonder why uh, Gibson's film, if you recall, if you saw it, uh, never answers the question, why? Why is this man, this innocent man, being brutally beaten and hung on a cross? Gibson, because of his Roman Catholicism, clearly does not want you to know the answer to that question. Because the answer to that question in a Roman Catholic's view is entirely different than what we as Protestants believe. We do not believe that Jesus died as a sad story uh, and something that we continually look back on as inspiration to continue to live our lives. But rather, we know that Jesus died in our place as our sacrifice and that Jesus did not remain on that cross, but rather he got down and he rose again from the grave and now stands victoriously in heaven. And so, in response to this movie a guy by the name of Stuart Townen wrote a song. He wrote a song entitled The Power of the Cross, a song we sang last Sunday uh, at the conclusion of our service. This song, as Stuart was hearing about this movie and was uh, reflecting on Gibson's uh, really intent behind the movie and was thinking the sadness of the whole thing was that it never answered that question, why? And so what Townen wanted to do was to write a song that answered the question. That why Jesus, this innocent man, was crucified on the cross. And in the power of the cross, that he answers that question. That Christ died to give us victory over sin. That Christ died as a sacrifice for sinners. And this morning, we're going to think about that. 
We don't want to just pass over in, in passages of Scripture where it talks about the sacrifice of Christ and think, you know, we learned that. That's sort of like old news, and we've kind of moved on. But, but one of the things we want as Christians, and what I want is this congregation to grow in, is that all of our life, it, all of our conversations, every decision we make, everything we do in life is directly impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, the gospel of Jesus Christ impacts everything in your life, from how you spend your money to who you marry. It impacts where you live and where you work. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just something we talk about on Sundays and forget the rest of the week, but rather is something that, that comes and infuses our souls, infuses our lives, and affects everything we do as people. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us and changes us, and it's all we want to talk about and all we want to think about. I invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 in verse 32. Mark chapter 10 in verse 32. Mark records for us what happened and they, that is the disciples and Jesus, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. Mark records for us a third prediction by Jesus. If you will remember, Jesus has already uh, prophesied of his death uh, twice in the Gospel of Mark. And in this particular context, Jesus has been teaching his disciples what it means to follow him, what it looks like. And so that comment I made earlier about how the gospel affects our lives, do you find it coincidental or interesting? I don't think it's happened since. If you look back just one chapter, uh, or two chapters rather, turn your Bible pages back, uh, you'll remember in the end of chapter 8, Peter makes this uh, grand confession that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, sort of a climactic point in the life of Peter. Peter uh, there says, we, you know, the, the Bible tells us that it was the Holy Spirit that gave him the words to say. Uh, his, the Father in heaven, uh, through the Spirit, gave him what to say. And, and Jesus makes this, this or, excuse me, Peter makes this grand confession about Jesus. And, and in response to that, in verse 31 of chapter 8, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And if you remember, Peter wasn't too thrilled by the idea. Uh, Peter thought that it was rather uh, a terrible way to die and something for which he thought Jesus was unworthy of. And so uh, there was a little bit of an argument there as Jesus sought to teach his disciples what it meant to be the Messiah, and what it meant to be a disciple, a follower. And so since that point in Mark's gospel, we have been considering verse after verse of Jesus' instruction about what it means to follow him. 
and peppered throughout this section has been those prophecies of Jesus foretelling his own death, burial, and resurrection. And so what he wants his disciples to know, and, and Mark wants us to know, is he's organized excuse me, his gospel around these three, these three ideas. And the center part of this gospel is we seek to a- answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? We see that every answer to that question has to be answered in light of the gospel, in light of Christ's sacrifice for our sin. And so we don't want to see uh, you know, sort of a, a dichotomy between following Jesus and the gospel, but we want to see that they go hand in hand. And if you remember last week, Jesus was dealing with a rich young ruler. That is, that the cost of following Jesus is great. That Jesus there confronted us with the reality that following him will cost us everything. That is, that he calls us to submit all things under his lordship. Jesus doesn't just call us to give up a few things to follow him. He rather get, tells us that we must give up all things in order for us to embrace Jesus. One of the things we must learn today is that God gives us life through this substitute. When we bring things to God as offerings in a sense of sacrifice, like, look, look at this, I did this, look at this good thing I did, as the means for our acceptance with God, what we are doing is undermining the cross of Christ. We are seeking to do exactly what Gibson did, is take away the power of the cross. And so this morning, I hope as we think about this passage, we see that the way of the cross reveals God's glorious purposes to ransom a people for his own glory. And that he will ransom this people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That God is at work redeeming a people for his own glory. The way of the cross, however, will not come through military victories or political uh, defeat or political revolt, but will come through suffering and death by the Son of Man. All of those around Jesus were confused about what it was going to look like for Jesus to be victorious. But through the death of Christ and the resurrection, Jesus vindicates his own name. He vindicates his own glory. He, he comes and he proves that everything he did, in fact, accomplishes God's purposes. So what I want us to think about this morning is really just two things. And if you take notes, there's just really just two points. Our text this morning, as you just sort of kind of just consider, I, I pray you're looking at it right now, but if you just look, it's sort of an ominous picture, isn't it, of Jesus walking out there in front of his disciples. His disciples are, are sort of tagging along. Jesus is out front. Uh, there's some other people in the crowd following along with him. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way there. He's on a death march, if you will. He's leading the way to his own death. Ominous picture, and it's in the midst of that that we see the way of the cross. We see the way of Jesus' cross is, is a way of suffering, a way of sacrifice and death. We really see two responses in this passage, don't we? First, we see sort of a mixed emotional response by the disciples and those in the crowd. And then finally, we see Jesus teaching us this glorious purposes of God in the cross of Calvary. So the first thing I want you to see here in this passage is that the way of the cross produces mixed emotions. Not everyone is thrilled by the idea. Mark tells us and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed 
were afraid. What we see here is Mark telling us sort of the plan uh, a little bit. And, and, and one of the things we want to be careful of is not to think that Mark sort of recorded this as sort of a, a nice little, you know, kind of after the fact, he sort of added this into the, the story. But rather, we want to see and believe that this really happened. This is literal. This market, Peter told Mark, Mark's telling us exactly what happened. That they were on the road, Jesus stopped, and he began to tell them exactly what is about to happen. He tells us that they're on the way to Jerusalem. Now, this is the first time in Mark's gospel that Mark has been explicit that Jerusalem is the place where Jesus will die. This is the very first time it's ever mentioned. It's kind of hinted at uh, because the scribes and Pharisees are from Jerusalem. They're the ones that are going to ultimately hand him over. But, but we see that Mark is beginning to get very explicit about what is about to happen. All of this is meant, if you look in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles open, you'll just, just gaze your eyes over to the left or excuse me, to the right, excuse me, to the right, to to chapter 11. And you'll see there, in chapter 11, is the triumphal entry, right? That familiar passage, those familiar passages where Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem and that the Passion Week has begun, right? That's Palm Sunday, right? So here we are in the Passion Week, we're beginning, and we can see Jesus is on the road toward that day. He's maybe months out from the cross. And as he's on the road, as he's journeying again, We see this picture. Mark tells us that Jesus is ahead of them. This isn't by chance that he's telling us this. He's he's telling us that Jesus is the one who will lead the way to the cross. Jesus isn't cowering at the fact that he knows he's not sitting in the background, but rather leads his disciples to their death. The disciples are have mixed emotions about this. The ESV translates this and trying to lead us in, in sort of understanding that there's really two groups here. So if you have a Bible that perhaps groups them together, more likely, and we're not really sure, but it seems to be that the language is leading us to how the ESV's translated it. That is, they, that is the disciples, were amazed, and that those who were uh, following, those that were in the crowd, this sort of band outside of the twelve, were afraid. And so we see sort of mixed emotions. We see, we see uh, fear and we see amazement. And, and really, these two emotions are central to the Gospel of Mark. If you remember in some of the stories we've considered, this, uh, this emotion of amazement is really central. It's, it's core. If you have your Bibles, let's, let's look at a couple examples here. First in Mark chapter 1. Just turn back a few pages. Again, if you don't have your Bibles open, this is going to be particularly boring um, and unhelpful probably. But So open your Bibles. Um, and look, don't believe what I say. Believe God's Word. Mark chapter 1 and verse 27. Jesus here in this context has healed a, uh, a man who had, an un, who had a demon, a, a demon possessed, and, and, and he does an exorcism there. He exorcises the demon. And notice in response to this uh, that they, that is the crowd, were um, all amazed. They were amazed. And notice what their response, uh, their question was in their amazement. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Remember, essential to Mark's gospel is that question, who is this guy? 
Who is this guy? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And that's why Mark is writing. He, he seeks to answer that question. Who is Jesus? So if we continue, uh, if we see with the rich young ruler, that was, a, that was the question in, in response. The, the last week we considered the rich young ruler, uh, the disciples respond in amazement at Jesus' teaching. Just like the crowds here are amazed at there, and there's several others we won't look at. But, uh, but move forward a little bit to chapter 4. In chapter 4, we see that fear and amazement are associated together and are central to that question of who Jesus is. In chapter 4 and verse 41, this is where Jesus calms the, the storm there. His disciples are out there and their little fraidy cats on the water. Imagine these little fishermen holding each other and hugging each other there. And uh, the wind and the waves cease. Jesus you know, calms them. And in verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then notice their response. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And so that question of who is this is, is accompanied by this fear and amazement. So why does Mark tell us that the disciples were amazed and that they were afraid? We don't really know why. We don't know what it was that that uh, that had them uh, amazed that day. Perhaps they were still sort of uh, uh, kind of in awe and shock over what they had, uh, what he had said to that rich young ruler. Perhaps they were still um, quite uh, confused and maybe even rattled. Remember, these were wealthy men. Uh, these were business owners or heirs of of businesses like John and. Uh, and his brother James, who would have inherited their father's fishing industry. And so uh, perhaps those, those words are still sort of uh, got them a little shaky and unnerved. Um, we really don't know. One thing we do know, though, is that many in the crowd thought the Messiah was going to be some sort of military or political leader who would overthrow the Roman government. And so many of them were beginning to sort of understand what was about to happen. Uh, it was beginning to sink in a little bit about Jesus' teaching that he is going to die. Or perhaps also they just knew that if Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, things were really going to go bad for him. And so they were afraid. They were afraid that Jesus was going to die and be killed. They missed the purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we see here that these men put their hope in the healings and prophecies of the Old Testament and misunderstood when Jesus would fulfill those passages. So many were afraid that Jesus was not the one who was promised to come. Many were afraid that Jesus perhaps wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the one that was coming. But still, the disciples are met with astonishment. And I think their astonishment is more the fact that their, their Savior, their Master, is walking in front of them. Imagine for a moment if you knew that if you went to a particular city that there was a warrant out for your arrest and you would die. If you showed up in that town, they would arrest you and you would die. And here Jesus is walking out in front of the whole crowd saying, I'm going to the cross. I know why I've came. I'm not cowering. I'm not staying in Galilee. It's time to go. 
What we see here in this passage is that Jesus is leading the way to the cross. And the climactic verse in this entire gospel comes to us in verse 45, for which we'll consider more next week, but is related to what Jesus is talking about here in our verses. So go to verse 45, look at chapter 10 and verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, this is why I came. I came to die for sinners. I came to to purchase sinners. This is why I'm going to die. And so what Jesus is doing here is leading us onward, leading us forward. Jesus was fulfilling Isaiah 50, but the Lord God helped me. Therefore, I have not become a disgrace. Therefore, excuse me, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall be put, shall not be put to shame. As Luke tells us in his gospel, when the, when the day drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth, who is fully God and fully man, who had the same fears and same hurts that you and I have, that if you stab him, he bleeds. You punch him, he cries. This same man walked out in front of the crowd and he says, I'm going to my death. I will not cower in fear. And that is met with mixed emotions. In mixed emotion, Jesus reveals to us that that God's glory is in the cross. That God's glory is revealed in the cross of Calvary. And what Jesus records for us is the plan of God to redeem people for his own glory. Notice with me the continuing uh, verses here. Jesus took the twelve aside and began to teach them or tell them what was about to happen or what was to happen to him. One thing we learn here in this passage is Jesus is demonstrating his divine nature, isn't he? I mean, we could easily gloss over this and miss. Mark is telling us something about who this is. This man is predicting his own future. Don't miss this fact that Jesus had the power to know the future. Jesus knew men's hearts. Jesus knew things. That, that these weren't just premonitions. These weren't just like, you know, I think this is probably going to happen. No, this is the divine son showing us his divine nature. He says this is going to happen. He doesn't say this, is, this might happen. You know, if things continue the way they're, they're on right now, if, you know, I've, if I keep making these guys mad, this is what's going to happen. They're going to kill me. You know, it's going to be terrible. No, no, no. Notice the vividness by which Jesus tells us what is going to happen. He didn't just say, hey, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to raise again. No, no, look at the vividness of the detail. He says that that we're going to Jerusalem, right? How did Jesus know that? I mean, what if something happened, you know? How did, he, how did he know they were going to go to jail? I mean, I mean, how do we, you know, we all, we all make plans. Like, we know, like, tomorrow we're going to wake up, we're going to go to work, right? We talk like that, right? We, we know that we're going to get up, we're going to, you know, afterwards, we're going to go eat. Like, we just have this sort of confidence in the future. We know what's going to happen. James warns us of that sort of kind of behavior, but Jesus here says it because he knows what's going to happen. He's like, no, this is what's going to happen. I'm, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. And, and the Son of Man, notice the detail here. Look, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. Right? And they will condemn him to death. And then they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. 
And they, that is the Gentiles, will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And then notice this, this random detail, right? We, well, what seems to be random. And three days he will rise. The Son of God knew exactly what was to happen. Jesus Christ is not merely a man, but here is revealing to us his divine nature, that he is the Son of God. He uses in this passage a title for which is his favorite, the Son of Man. Coming from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, uh, fulfillment of that prophecy that the Son of Man will, will come. But one thing we want to see here is that Jesus is revealing to us his role as a man. That is, Jesus is not only fully God, but he is fully man. He's not like some sort of hybrid, half man, half God. No, he is fully God and fully man. Completely God in full nature, as we, as we said in the Apostles' Creed, and as we'll say next week in the Nicene Creed, fully God. There's not anything that he's missing. He's all God. But he's also all man. There's nothing about him that is different than you and I. Nothing about him that, that, that's, that's different. He, he has the complete same emotions as we have. The same body as we have. And what we see here is that he is the son of man. That is that he is the representation of man. He is going to go and represent us. Like Adam represented humanity in the garden. So Jesus represents as the new Adam. For this new creation that God is creating. That is that we have a new head. It's no longer Adam. That in Christ the new head is Jesus. He is our representation. He goes on our behalf. This is part of God's purpose and plan. Further Jesus here in this passage explains to us. His, the nature of his suffering and his death. Jesus here tells us exactly what is going to happen. He spares no detail. As I've already mentioned, the Bible in all of its sufficiency tells us what we need to know about Jesus. And if we were to fast forward to chapter 15 and begin to look at exactly what happens, what Mark tells us, it, it matches up quite perfectly. But one thing I want to show you this morning is how each of these correspond to Isaiah's prophecy. I want you to see that, that Jesus' words here were meant to for us to understand something about Jesus. That Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. That Jesus is the suffering servant for which Isaiah prophesied. And so if you just have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50, page 611 in your pew Bibles. Or in an ESV, if you have a, if you just have like a regular print ESV, 611. If you have a jumbo mumbo print, I can't help you. Uh, Isaiah Isaiah 50. Jesus says that he will be mocked and spit upon. A fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied about the servant. Isaiah's servant in Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And if you just turn over to 53 and verse 3, 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Mockery and spitting was meant to cause him sorrow. And Jesus says, I will fulfill this word. Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 50 verse 6 that he will give his back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Jesus prophesied that, that he would be scourged, that the Romans would stab him and scourge him. A fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And finally Jesus foretold of his death. And Isaiah prophesied 600 years earlier. In Isaiah 53 and verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. An innocent man was buried in the rich man's grave. And Jesus foretold that this is what was going to happen to him, that Jesus knows the future, yet he is willingly going to the cross of Calvary. If you want to know the depth of your Savior's love, he knew all of this his entire life, yet he still purposed to die for sinners. Jesus is Isaiah's suffering servant. Jesus is the Messiah who has come. But what we see also in this passage is that God is the one who's behind the whole thing. Jesus reveals to us in this passage that this is not an accident. That this isn't just some divine tragedy. This wasn't a terrible mistake. Jesus isn't a victim of, of terrible circumstances. No, Jesus knew full well what would happen. Jesus knew the future that awaited him because he planned it. In this passage, we see what's called a divine passive. What that means is, is that Mark tells us that Jesus, or Jesus tells us that he will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. He doesn't tell us who does the delivering, does he? He doesn't say, Judas will deliver me over to the chief priest and the scribes. Although historically that is true. What Jesus does here is though point rather that God is the one who will be doing the delivery. That God was the one who sent his son to die. That this was God's plan and purpose, not ours. This was not invented by first century Christians who just wanted to make their Savior look good. But rather Paul tells us that this was God's plan from the foundation of the world. That is, before he even created the first molecule, God had purposed to send his son to die. The promised child that was prophesied for in Genesis 3.15, some thousands of years before Jesus, has come in fulfillment in this passage. The promised child of Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the serpent and who would be wounded by the, the evil and ancient snake, has come in Jesus Christ. The child has come to suffer. 
to suffer the death that every one of Adam's children deserved. Christ Jesus came. And as we reflect upon Jesus' prophecy here, as we kind of just reflect on why would Jesus tell us this, I want you to notice something in this passage. Notice what he says. We are going to Jerusalem. Jesus invited his disciples to his death. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, look, this is what's going to happen. I want you all to wait back at home, go back to Peter's house, uh, go back to base camp, and wait there. Now he says, we're going. We're all going. We're all going to the cross, he says. We're all going to go and see the Son of Man slain for sinners. So that you can go and tell others about me. Jesus invites his disciples upon the journey. We're all going to Jerusalem. Everyone will see. He was going to show them that what he did accomplished not only for us, but for them. And for the follower of Jesus, the way is the cross. Jesus is teaching his disciples that if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then you must go to the cross. You must pick up your cross and you must follow me. That the way to follow Jesus is the way of death. This is what the epistles teach us. This is what Paul and Peter tell us. That the way to follow Jesus is to die. But what happens to us here in America is we have long forgotten that. We have become comfortable. And think that following Jesus is no more than praying prayers and filling out cards and attending services. But rather, the way of the cross is the way of death. No one goes to the cross. No one picks up a cross to put it down again. You only pick up a cross if you're going to die. And Jesus, in this passage, is inviting you and I to die. To die with Him. To die with Him. To, to give our life to Him. To say, it's not my life, it's your life. You died for me. It's to hand our lives over to Him. But He does not just merely hand it over. We don't just merely hand it over without hope. In the midst of their amazement and the midst of their fears, Jesus gives them hope, doesn't He? Jesus tells them, Look, these terrible things are about to happen. It's going to be gruesome. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a lot of tears and a lot of blood. But I'm going to get back up in three days. I will be victorious. I will vindicate my glorious name in the name of my Father. And our hope this morning is in the resurrection. We've gathered this morning to sing about the resurrection. The resurrection is every Sunday. It's not just Easter. Every Sunday we gather to sing about the victory we have because Jesus is not dead in a tomb in the Middle East. Our victory is in the fact that Christ arose again. And so we march to the cross. 
knowing that we will not die, but we will raise again. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we're overwhelmed by the sacrifice of Christ. We are with the disciples in amazement of the cross of Calvary, that you would bleed and die and suffer for sinners and rebels. I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. Oh, Father, may we hear our own cries to crucify him. We would love nothing more to see the Savior die. We were the ones who crucified him. It was our sin that held him there. Our sin, not, not our neighbor's sin. It was our sin. And Father, my prayer is that our lives would be gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That every day we would be encountered with the gospel. That every day it would change us and cause us to let go of this world. To let go of our riches. To let go of our pride. To let go of our idolatry. To let go of us. And to go to the cross and there die. Father, may we find our lives united to Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. We are so united to Christ that we died with him. That the old man is dead and that the new man has come. We have life today. We are new. We are no longer rebels. We are now sons and daughters of the Most High God. Father, I pray you would help us to live in light of that new reality. Cause us by your Spirit to obey you as children and not as rebels. Oh, Father, help us to fight the temptations that we face to slip back into our old ways. But may we put on the new man, created after the likeness of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray tonight today for these people that you would transform them from one degree of glory to the next as we all look forward to that call of Christ where we shall experience the resurrection unto life we give you glory and praise and we pray this in Christ's name